0: The reading of the scriptures, I invite your attention to Romans chapter 10, uh, reading verses 5 to 13. And again, may uh, the congregation hear the word of the Lord uh, in faith and with joy that we have God's revealed word uh, in the Bible. So from Romans chapter 10. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That is to bring Christ down or who will ascend into the abyss. That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: The one time uh, popular uh, song by Frank Sinatra or Elvis Presley, uh, I Did It My Way, uh, is not in any church hymnals that I'm aware of. Uh, But the theology of that hymn, I Did It My Way, is really everywhere, uh, even in churches, many, many churches. Uh, it is uh, good to recover the reality that uh, God says, my way, and that our response is to be his way. Uh, the, the broad context of uh, the text this morning is, as you know, beginning with Romans chapter 9 to the end of chapter 11, is God is dealing with the question of physical or ethnic Israel. What about Israel? Is the word of God failed? And so that's really the subject matter that Paul is uh, dealing with uh, in these chapters. Uh, And uh, certainly uh, in the immediate context, uh, Paul is dealing with Israel's way, because they're singing... Sinatra song. Uh, it is. Uh, it's a way that, again, is pervasive. Uh, if you look at Romans chapter ten, verse three, seeking to establish their own righteousness. Surely that will work before God. Seeking to live a good life, do all kinds of good things to engage in social justice, to fly different colored flags, uh, and on and on we go, seeking to establish our own righteousness, that God will open the door to his eternal presence, and that God will not. Uh, When you go down the road of Sinatra or Elvis Presley, seeking your own righteousness, it is um, not just a cul-de-sac, It is a dead-end street. And it is that message that the Apostle Paul will bring before uh, ethnic Israel, but really all of us, because all of us uh, need to understand that seeking our own righteousness uh, is not the way to God. It is his way. And our response should be that it is his way. Paul will deal in uh, our text this morning, first with Moses, the law of God, and then he'll turn to the prophets. Uh, And from both, he's going to establish the supremacy and preeminence of the way of God and eternal salvation. Uh, In in verse uh, 5, Moses tells us about the totality of the demands of the law. Uh, In other words, that the law will catch us in our vain attempts to presume that we could make ourselves righteous before God. Uh, The folly of their proposition, seeking their own way, uh, is in the scriptures. Paul's going to cite Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5. uh, The context of that chapter is an affirmation of the importance of obedience and the blessings that will follow. The problem with the demand of obedience, and this catches us all, is that it is total. It doesn't grade on the curve, and it is absolute. I'd like to quote, uh, a well-known book of theology, namely the Westminster Standards to this end, that are acknowledging the totality of the demands of the law upon all of us. The authors say that uh, the demands of obedience are personal, entire, exact, perfect, and perpetual. I might add, unrelenting in their demands. And so think about saying you encounter God and you're going to mimic Frank Sinatra or Elvis Presley. I did it my way. In light of the demands of God's law, it should cause us to stop and to think and reconsider God's way. Let me document this uh, beyond the Westminster Standards from the Scriptures. Book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 3, going to read verses 10 and 11. For as many as are under the works of the law are under curse. In other words, everyone who seeks to establish their own righteousness by law works is cursed. Not my words, the words of the Apostle Paul. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God, is evident for the righteous man shall live by faith. Chapter 5 and verse 3, same book. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision if you will, a part for the whole, if you receive one element of the law, if you're saying, I can do one thing without doing all things, Paul reminds us he is under obligation to keep the whole law. In other words, the point of these texts is that the law catches all offenders and threatens death at any aspect of disobedience. And I remind you, as, as you many of you know, that in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the Lord Jesus, who is the greatest of all lawgivers, takes the law and intensifies it by his own personal perfections. Let's look at a couple of examples of uh, lawbreakers. Adam was kicked out of the garden for breaking the law of God. The nation of Israel was kicked out of the garden land for disobeying. Unbelievers, for their disobedience, will be denied entrance into the eternal garden. And so seeking to establish your own righteousness by doing good works, even law works, is an impossible task that will end in failure. The problem with the law is that it had no ability to impart spiritual life. It could condemn, but it cannot save. And that applies to someone seeking their own way. You'll be caught in condemnation, and it cannot save uh, because God will not accept it. More critically, it points us to the divine answer in God's way, and that is Christ. One of the summary perfections of the law is simply this. If you can't do it perfectly, then go to someone who has. And that someone is Jesus Christ. He alone kept all of the law perfectly, thereby establishing the merits of his obedience received by faith alone is what saves. In other words, the entire perfections of his obedience can be received by faith and believed. And so the answer is not our law works, but his. The answer is not us reforming ourselves. It's his grace imputing righteousness to our account. A well-known Protestant theologian who recently passed away, R.C. Sproul, reminds us, that we are saved by works, the work of Christ, and not our own. And that is one of the points of the law. Turn to someone who has kept it perfectly, totally, absolutely. So much so that he was accepted by God. And so much so that God the Father in sovereign grace charges the merits of the righteousness of Christ to those who receive him by faith. That's God's way. And our response should be, that's our way too. Because every other way will fail. In verses 6 to 10, the answer is the demands of the law turn us to the satisfaction of those demands by Christ our Redeemer. Uh, Verses 6 to 8, Paul quotes the Old Testament a second time. From Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 12 to 14. Uh, This, too, is uh, the context of the importance of obedience and the penalty of disobedience. Again, there's a promise of prosperity in the land based upon obedience. And then Moses obviates a typical excuse. It's too hard or impossible. Moses says it's, it's not too difficult and neither is it too far away. He says you don't have to go to heaven or you don't have to go beyond the seas looking for it. It's very near in your mouth and heart. Think about it. Oh, the law is so impossibly demanding. Well, if those demands are met by Christ for us, then it's so near, is it not? To be received by faith. The language is affirming that they knew the law. Of course, they were Jews. They were, uh, had received the law. They uh, taught it, uh, but it's never in the teaching, is it? It's in the doing, and that's where they failed, and that's where all of us fail, and that is where Christ succeeds for us. The "Do not say in your heart" is an allusion to Deuteronomy chapter nine and verse four. God says to them, do not say that it is because of my righteousness that I possess the land, but it is because of the wickedness of the nation. God says, uh, I didn't, I didn't give you the garden land because you were good. I gave you the garden land because they were so bad. In other words, here again, it's not their presumed self-righteousness that was their gateway into the garden land. The nations were so bad. The land was a gift of God's grace and goodness. If they keep the law, they can remain. If they don't, they're kicked out. And that's exactly what happened. Now, why is that? Because the law is so demanding. Paul makes a Christological application from Deuteronomy that righteousness comes from faith, verses 6 to 7. And that's the answer. In our case, we simply believe what Christ did for us as our substitute. We accept the perfections of his obedience. And that's the answer. That's God's way. And our response should be, that's our our way too. Because there's no other way. If perfection is the demand, then we need a perfect person to substitute for us. And that's the provision of Christ. Paul adds that concerning going to heaven to get the law, you don't have to do that because Christ has come down. The reference is to the incarnation, the God-man. He was God, but he assumed human nature in all of the demands of obedience. In other words, we don't have to go to heaven to learn the law. The word became flesh and tabernacled and dwelt among us. And concerning descending, Paul changes the word from sea. You don't have to go across the sea that's used in the uh, Hebrew Bible or the Greek translation of the Old Testament. He changes the word to abyss. Greek translation, perhaps the two words are interchangeable. Uh, But in the Old Testament, think about it. the, uh, the, The sea was a place of chaos and incredible danger. And the grave is a place of no return. We don't have to go to either place. We don't have to go to some long, protracted, dangerous journey to understand the word because it came to dwell in our midst. It was transmitted to the apostles, received by the apostolic community and given to us in the word of God, the scriptures by the incarnate word Christ. And God raised him from the dead to teach us that we do not have to go to the grave. He went there for us as our substitute. In grace, God has come near in the Messiah and the word of faith. We believe his work of substitution, that he took what we deserved upon himself, even though he was undeserving of that penalty. Contextually, as you know from uh, the book of Romans, all of this is a reference to the great doctrine of justification by faith alone. That we're justified by the merits of his obedience, that he did for us what we could not do for ourselves by the grace of God. Paul advances in verses 9 to 10 the concept of knowledge to believing resulting in righteousness and confessing resulting in salvation. So that we apprehend the merits of the obedience of Christ by faith, and God accepts it as our own obedience. Incredible gift of a substitute who kept the law totally because we could not. In other words, true faith engages uh, the conviction that what Christ did for us is true and sure and certain, and it relies on it. In other words, if he was our substitute, we're going to trust him. Since the Father accepted him, we accept him. We rely upon him. That's God's way. It needs to be our way because God will accept no other substitutes except the one that he provides, the perfections of the God-man Jesus Christ. And true faith is a conviction and reliance in Christ alone is the basis of satisfaction for the demands of the law and the entire, I say again, meritorious cause of our justification. Paul is using... Again, he's speaking indirectly to a Jewish community. So he's using the law because that's what they would have repaired to. So he's using the Old Testament law and Moses himself in a rhetorical way to persuade them. The law itself says it's impossible to keep. And therefore, look to the lawgiver who is Christ. Trust him by faith. Stop and think about that. Every believer in the Old Testament was saved by faith in Christ. Abraham. The patriarchs. Every believer in the Old Testament was saved by faith in Christ who was to come. They weren't saved by doing the works of the law. The law was a tutor a school teacher to chase them to God's provision of grace in Christ. Application to us is profound because we're saved in the same way. Only one way, God's way. I see it as an echo of the redemptive reality that Christ is the end of the law. Romans chapter 10, verse 4. The law points to him and what he did for us. And we receive it by faith, believing, hoping, relying upon him alone. The interplay here in our text between heart and mouth is the necessary connection between the internal, our heart, and the external, our mouth. That's God's answer to the demands of the law that he knows no one can keep. The answer of God is also uh, his sovereign grace, that God is a gracious God. Let me document that in just a couple of different ways this morning. Uh, The... uh, The prophet Isaiah in chapter 54, verse 13 says, And all of your sons will be taught of the Lord. In other words, someday in the history of the nation, uh, God is going to teach his sons. That's a prophecy of God reconstituting the nation from judgment and a change from judgment to grace because their teachers have failed. So God will become the teacher, and God never fails. And he will teach perfectly about his perfect answer in God the Son. Prophet uh, Jeremiah echoes that same beautiful reality. And they shall not teach again, each man his neighbor, and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. And the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. It's a prophecy, again, of grace overcoming their disobedience by efficacious teaching and learning. Both of these texts, Isaiah and Jeremiah, are fulfilled by Christ. Think about it. We all need teachers. Most of us go to school for long periods of our life to learn. And yet, God's going to come and be our teacher about the way of salvation. And it's not left to us. It's left to his power, his grace, and his majesty. Turn with me, if you would, to a fulfillment text of both of these realities, a Gospel of John. uh, Chapter 6, verses 44 and 45. No one can come to me, Jesus says, unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. For it is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. And everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. There's the teacher, God the Father. And there's something radically important about this text. That is, he's an efficacious teacher. In other words, when he teaches, we learn. And what's the object of his teaching? Jesus Christ. The way to God the Father is to God the Son. No other way. And so the beauty and the majesty of the grace of God, everyone taught of God the Father comes to Christ. I suspect some of you have taken courses in school where you really struggled. I think of my own Time at the university, calculus, oh my. Great difficult science classes. God says, yes, keeping the law is impossible. But I'm going to teach you efficaciously and bring you to my son. And there he is the sole answer to the demands of the law. In other words, it's the grace of God. He becomes our teacher, and we go to his son. You might ask yourself the question, well, how do I know that he's taught me? Well, the answer is, have you gone to his son? That's the answer. That is God's way. It must be our way. The context, again, is the father efficaciously teaching his own so that they come to Christ. Furthermore, Paul, uh, in a couple of occasions in our context in the reading of the text, uh, uses the confession Jesus is Lord. Verse 9 and verse 12. How is it that someone comes to confess Jesus is Lord? The answer is sovereign grace. Turn with me, if you would, in your New Testament for 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 3. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. The triune God giving us the confession that Jesus is Lord. And he does it by sovereign grace. He does not do it based upon the obedience to the totality of the demands of the law. He does it because he's a gracious God. Our confession and faith do not save us. Grace saves us. Faith is simply the means to apprehend Christ as Savior, but grace secures it for us. In other words, a gracious God is the answer. And the provision of a gracious God is the only answer. His way. And that should be our response as well. In the law, the Apostle Paul turns to the prophets. To affirm this message, verses 11 to 13. First, verse 11, there's a citation from Isaiah 28 and verse 16. Very interesting that Paul has already used this verse. Uh, look, for example, uh, to the citation in Romans chapter 9, verse 33. Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and who believes in him will not be disappointed. The second half of that verse is what Paul quotes in verse 11. Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Um, I'm sure all of you have taken courses and you were very disappointed at the grade you received. Maybe you went to see your professor and tried to argue. Maybe you worked very hard and you only got a C minus. I mean, I don't know, but I, I know that I've been there. You believe in Christ, you will never be disappointed. He never disappoints. He only blesses eternally. There is no disappointment whatsoever in the divine provision. I've done things throughout my life which I've said, oh, I I wish I hadn't gone down that road. I like the word comes from golf, even though I don't play it, of a mulligan. You get another shot, over. You can take a do-over. With Christ, there you don't need a do-over. He is the final, total, absolute provision of God. Immutable because of his perfections. When you have him, you need no mulligans the prophet Isaiah is affirming that reality. Throughout all of life, we face disappointments. Faith in Christ will never be a boomerang, will never disappoint you. His work received by God the Father. The context of Isaiah 28 is one of judgment and an appeal to trust God in the midst of it. It's very interesting that the fuller quotation of Matthew 28 or pardon me Isaiah 28:16 uh references um, a stone uh which is a reference to Messiah. He's a stone that will come and uh, be a, a rock of safety. Uh he is uh, a stone that will also destroy all who are not found in him. The prophet Daniel uses that illusion in Daniel chapter 2 of a stone mountain coming and smashing all earthly kingdoms. But he will not smash us. He will receive us because we have trusted him by faith and the entirety of his obedience in place of our disobedience. Place of safety. Something you can build your life on. The Old Testament Bible uh, has, instead of the word disappointed, uh, to be in a rush or hurry uh, as if one is scurrying about in a panic when judgment comes. The New Testament teaches us that we do not know when that day is coming. But we know that many, many will be caught unawares, and they will be in a panic We who have trusted Christ have no need to panic. We don't need to be in a hurry. Because he's the answer that heaven accepts, always. And it will never disappoint. And so that we can be at peace, knowing that the judgment that we deserved fell upon him. So we don't need to be in a hurry to find an answer. He is our answer. And heaven accepts that answer. The answer of God the Son. Second uh, quotation from the prophets is Prophet Joel, uh, Joel chapter two and verse thirty-two. Uh, context is the day of the Lord when He comes in total judgment, and the prophet says, "Whoever calls upon the Lord will be saved." Whoever has faith in the Lord will be saved. It's an impelling reason to call upon the Lord. To realizing that seeking your own way of righteousness will not work before an eternal God in all of his perfections. Uh, I got a number of mulligans uh, in my collegiate career. The prophet would stand, the teacher would stand up and say, well, I'm going to grade on the curve. (laughs) Well, I knew in one work of grace i have been swept into passing. God doesn't grade on the curve. And that's why we flee to Christ. Because he did for us what we could not do for ourselves. Whoever calls upon him will be saved. The future tense speaks to certainty. Will be. Irrevocable. Certainty will be saved. Because of who he is and what he did for us. And that heaven accepts his work for our lack of works. You think about it. Every religion is doing good to try to sell that to God when His law teaches us that no one does good, but God Himself and God the Son. Therefore, He is the way. It's very interesting that the prophet Joel, chapter 2, verse 32, is used by the apostle Peter in Acts chapter 2, in verse 21, that has its fulfillment beginning in the resurrected Christ. In other words, now. Now you can call upon Him. You don't have to wait You can call upon him now and you will be saved. So the day has begun. Safety is only in him and not from him. And his righteousness will not fail us in the judgment. And so it's God's way, God's provision. It must be ours because there's no other way. Again, I remind you, His righteousness will not fail us in the judgment. And so the Apostle Paul is teaching indirectly the Jews of his day who are seeking to establish their righteousness as the way to God. If Paul was a professor, he would flunk them all. But he doesn't have to be, because God has already summarily flunked them all point of the law is to chase us to Christ. Christ is the answer. I would remind you in this world of complexity and chaos, confusion, uh, sometimes uh, we simply say, religion is too hard, I'll never understand it. That God's way is simple. The simplicity of Christ, the Incarnation, Doing for us. It's also direct. It comes down from heaven to be the object for the Father to teach us about. It's written, it's in all of the scripture. I sometimes hear people say folly like, well, the Old Testament is all about judgment and the New Testament is all about love. Neither one of those is true. They all have the same answer flee to Christ. Flee to Christ. There is judgment, there is love. And the judgment and love of God have kissed one another in the provision of the Son, the Savior. It's historical. We're dealing with history, not myth. History. It's absolute. More importantly, the answer of God is totally successful because God only works perfection. That's the reason we go to the Son, the perfect God, the God-man. We have faith in what he did for us. We trust him. And therefore, we must go his way. For every other way is the way of disaster and God's way, is the beauty of the simplicity of Christ the Redeemer. I trust that is your hope. Uh, If not, I trust that God will be an efficacious teacher to your heart this very day, from the law and the prophets, and from his own Son, the beauty of our Redeemer, his way, our way.